Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Bad Apologetics. Now, there are a lot of bad apologetics that go on in the LDS Church. Believe me, I know. I've studied them, pretty much all of them, during that period of time when I was a Mormon apologist. And frankly, it was the discovery that a lot of the apologetics that were being used and that I used myself were bad that led me away from that field of endeavor. Now, what do I mean when I say bad apologetics? Well, that is a broad category and it can cover a number of things. First off, it can cover apologetics where the argument is fallacious, where it does not lead logically to the desired conclusion. It can also involve apologetics that may give a good answer to the question immediately before you, but if taken another step or two and extended to its logical conclusion, ends up having absurd results. But probably the worst kind of apologetics is the one that is false, not true, that contradicts the evidence, and in fact is designed to keep the listener from finding out the truth about the subject. Why on earth would an apologist want to keep a listener from finding out the truth about a subject? Well, obviously because the truth about the subject does not help the position of the apologist or the LDS church. Instead, it harms the position of the apologist and harms the LDS church. Specifically, what I want to talk about tonight are bad apologetics as they relate to the Adam-God theory. But before I get to tonight's subject, I want to make a couple of announcements. First off, I want to thank everybody who has made a donation to Radio Free Mormon. The way I have things arranged with Bill Real right now is that on a quarterly basis, I receive my share of the contributions made to this podcast. Now, Bill Real takes a cut off the top. This is done by agreement between me and Bill Real. It is completely fair that he gets a cut off the top because he bears all the expenses of running the podcast and all the many things that are involved with that. I bear none of the expenses. My contribution is my time, my research, and my energy in producing this podcast, which, by the way, I am entering the sixth week of daily podcasts from Radio Free Mormon presenting new material every weekday during this coronavirus pandemic. It is my bit in the war effort, so to speak, to try and help those of you who are sheltering at home and not able to leave the house as much as you would like. My hope is that a daily podcast will help relieve some of that stress, some of that boredom, some of that ennui you may be experiencing during this present emergency. But as I say, the way things are structured with Bill Real is that I get my share, which is by far the majority share of contributions to this podcast. I get them on a quarterly basis. And so the first quarter of 2020, just having passed at the end of March, Bill Real sent me a check for the first quarter. And I've got to tell you, it could not have come at a better time. Things here at Radio Free Mormon, at least in my other life as a lawyer, are extremely tight, like they are all over the place. Lawyers are not exempt from the economic crunch that is happening to so many people throughout the country and throughout the world. And the contributions that came in at the end of the first quarter was just enough to help me squeak by and pay the bills that need to be paid. It's almost like a tithing story, isn't it? I paid my tithing, God opened the windows of heaven, and gave me an extra amount of money from an unexpected source that helped me meet the present demands. Well, the same thing is happening with me, except instead of paying tithing, what I'm doing is I'm producing the Radio Free Mormon podcast. And lo and behold, in a time of need, what should come in to save the day and to save my bacon, but your very kind and very generous donations to this program once again, My heartfelt thanks to all of you who are keeping Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. You know, really, all it takes is $5 a month, $10 a month. If everybody listening to this podcast would go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website and make a continuing monthly donation of even $5 a month or $10 a month, it would be more than sufficient to keep Radio Free Mormon on the air. The problem is actually getting people to go to the website and make that monthly contribution. And part of it, I think, is just psychologically. It's natural to think that $5 a month, that's not going to be enough to amount to anything. Why should I bother making a monthly contribution of just $5 a month? Well, the answer to that is that if everybody made a contribution of $5 a month, then, of course, that adds up. So please, if you like what I'm producing here at Radio Free Mormon, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org. Make a monthly contribution of just $5 a month. That's all I'm asking. It is not too little for you to do. 
I will appreciate any contribution, whatever you can make. Another announcement that I wanted to make had to do with last Friday's podcast where I was talking about the new church logo and for some reason, which I cannot quite identify for you except it struck me as funny at the time, I decided to do an Elmo impression and say, Elmo loves the logo's logo. But apparently it caught on. And one of my listeners went to the effort of making a meme with a picture of Elmo from Sesame Street superimposing a picture of the new church logo and Elmo's looking at the new church logo in the meme and he is exclaiming in the words printed above his head, Elmo loved the, <laughs> Elmo loved the logo's logo. I saw that on Saturday and it just tickled me pink. I laughed out loud, literally, when I saw that. And I want to thank the listener who went to the effort and the creative genius of creating that meme and posting it on the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page. Yes, I was tickled pink. You could almost say I felt like a Tickle Me Elmo doll. So I wanted to mention that as well. Now, another thing I want to mention before I get to the bad apologetics part relating to the Adam God theory on tonight's podcast has to do with something I was listening to, a different podcast, over the weekend while I was mowing the lawn. And while I was mowing the lawn, I had my earphones in and I was listening to a recent interview of Charles Harrell over at the Coford Books podcast. He was being interviewed specifically about his book, which he wrote some time ago, but it's a very important book. It's called This Is My Doctrine. And what it does is it documents in almost every category imaginable the different doctrines of the LDS Church and shows how those doctrines have evolved over the years. With the result that in this very important book, Charles Harrell has shown that there is pretty much no doctrine in the LDS Church that is the same today as it has been in past generations. And as I say, he has a number of chapters, each one devoted to a specific doctrine, and he goes back to the very beginning, even back to the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then traces those doctrines as they were used and as they were taught in the early LDS church, and how pretty much all of those doctrines have changed over time up to the way they are currently taught as the orthodox correlated doctrine in the LDS church. It is an incredible book. If you have not read it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. But while I was mowing the lawn and listening to Charles Harrell being interviewed, he talked about something that I do not remember having heard before. And it has to do with the doctrine of restoration. Now, this is, of course, a very timely doctrine because we've just received a new proclamation on the restoration in the last general conference. By the way, for the record, today is Monday, April 27th, 2020. And when I say the last general conference, I'm talking about the conference of just a few weeks ago. And it all goes back to the scripture in the New Testament in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, where Peter is talking and he's saying that there will be a restoration or a restitution of all things which hath been spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. And that, of course, has become a proof text. Ever since I joined the church 40 years ago, I have been familiar with this passage as a proof text talking about a prophesied restoration of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, if there's going to be a restoration of the gospel, there has to be an apostasy first. You don't need a restoration unless there is a falling away. And indeed, that is how that passage has come to be understood in the LDS church. But it is not the way it has always been understood in the LDS church. And in fact, the passage itself from Acts chapter 3 verse 21 does not talk about a restitution or a restoration of the gospel. It talks about the restitution of all things. Well, what does all things mean? That is the question. And Charlie Harrell talks about the context of that verse and the sermon that Peter is giving. And he suggests that based on the context, what it's really talking about is that sinful humanity can now be restored to a sinless state through Jesus Christ and his atonement. That is the restitution of all things, that they are restored to God through a remission of their sins, which is made available through Jesus Christ. That it is not really a prophecy talking about some future date. It is a prophecy that he's relating back to all the prophets who have prophesied since the world began and saying that it's been fulfilled in Peter's day. But this passage has ended up having a very interesting history, and Charles Harrell talks about some of that history. One of the ways this passage was understood was as a proof text, not for Mormonism, but back at the time that Mormonism was being created and the Book of Mormon itself was being dictated, and in Joseph Smith's own neighborhood, there was a great deal of controversy and religious argument and debate about a variety of different issues. Joseph Smith talks about that in his 1838 account of the First Vision, and all the debate and all the controversy, the war of words, and the contests of opinions that were prevalent in his neighborhood. And one of those contests about religious doctrine had to do with the doctrine 
of universalism. Universalism is the idea that ultimately everybody will be saved. It was, of course, contradicted by the idea that people will be judged according to what they do here on this earth and to some extent perhaps what they believe here on this earth and that those who do the right thing and believe the right thing will go to heaven to be happy forever and those who do not do the right thing and do not believe the right thing will go to hell to be punished forever. So universalism stood in contradiction to this other idea. Once again, universalism teaching, as it did, there would be no people who would be tortured and punished forever under a loving, just God's plan. Instead, ultimately, eventually, at some point, if not immediately, everybody would be resurrected, everybody would be saved, everybody would inherit the kingdom of heaven, where they would be happy forever. Now, what was interesting to me was to learn from Charles Harold that this very scripture that we've been talking about, the one about the restitution or the restoration of all things, was used as a proof text by universalists in support of their doctrine. And the way they read that passage, that there would be a restitution of all things, is that that referred to people that all people would eventually be restored to a situation of wholeness, of fullness, of happiness, of salvation. And even though that's a very different understanding of this passage than the one that the LDS Church has come to adopt, it is nevertheless, if looked at objectively, and I try and be as objective as I possibly can, it is nevertheless at least equally as valid to interpret it in a universalistic sense as it is for the LDS Church to look at it in terms of a restoration of all things in the last days, i.e. through Joseph Smith, which typically means the correct doctrines, the correct teachings, the correct ordinances, and the correct priesthood power, that all those things would be restored in the last days. Now, taking that one step further, the Book of Mormon itself, when it came off the press, was seen by at least one person, and that one person was Alexander Campbell, as being a text that somehow managed to answer all of the religious controversies that were then ongoing in Joseph Smith's day and in Alexander Campbell's day. They were contemporaries. And the Book of Mormon does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it takes positions and argues against certain ideas that were common in Joseph Smith's day and argues for other positions that were common in Joseph Smith's day. Indeed, it does answer many, if not all, of the serious religious controversies that were going on in Joseph Smith's day. An obvious example has to do with infant baptism. That was a huge controversy in Joseph Smith's day. It's sometimes a big controversy even today. But in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, Mormon chapter 8, what happens there is that the position is taken that the correct side of that doctrine is that infant baptism is wrong. It's not just wrong. It's a blasphemy. It's horrible. It denies the merits of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And that if somebody should die while just thinking that it was necessary for infants to be baptized, then that person would be roasty toasty forever. So number one, the Book of Mormon addresses a controversy that was extant in Joseph Smith's day, and it comes down very hard on one side of that controversy. And this this is the example of infant baptism. The other thing that we can see going on here is that the Book of Mormon is definitely not a universalist text. It does not teach that everybody will eventually be saved. In fact, there are many passages where it comes down hard on the other side. We remember Nephi talking about that there be many in that day that will say, i.e. the last days, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, and that if God punishes us, it will be just with a few stripes and eventually we will be saved. Well, that's an idea of universalism because some universalists thought, well, there may be some punishment for what we do here on this earth, but we'll be punished for it, and eventually we will be saved. Well, the Book of Mormon says, no, that is wrong. That's not the way it's going to happen. Uh-uh. There's no universalism. And the Book of Mormon talks in many places about hell versus heaven, which is a doctrine that stood in direct contrast to universalism. There are also several scenarios that are set up between the righteous man of God, the prophet of God in the Book of Mormon, and an antagonist, someone who comes along with incorrect doctrines, teaching them to the people. There is a face-to-face -face confrontation between these two individuals, and the prophet of God shows how the other individual is wrong, and does so not only sometimes with prophetic power by striking them dumb, but also with scriptural arguments that were common in Joseph Smith's day. Now, these three people are sometimes called the three antichrists of the Book of Mormon. It's not a technically accurate term for all of them because not all of them are specifically anti-Christ, but it's a name that we commonly hear in the church. And those three individuals are, if memory serves, Sherem, who makes his appearance in Jacob chapter 7 and has his confrontation there with Jacob. There is Nehor in Alma chapter 1, and there is Korihor 
in Alma chapter 30. Those are the three instances of false teachers coming among the people and being confuted and confounded by the righteous prophet of God. Now, in all those cases, what is being confuted and confounded by the righteous prophet of God are religious positions and arguments that were being made in Joseph Smith's own environment. And so here again, we can see the Book of Mormon bringing the religious disputes of Joseph Smith's day to the front through this means of having characters representing the wrong view and another character representing the correct view, or at least the view that the Book of Mormon is going to side with, and showing why it is that the wrong idea held by the Antichrist is wrong and the right idea held by the prophet of God is right. But there is an instance of that that happens later on in the chapters of Alma, which I had not put two and two together on before hearing this interview from Charles Harrell, and this is what I want to talk about right now. And it has to do with when Alma, the younger, he's a grown-up guy now, he's got three sons, and there are several chapters in and around Alma chapter 40 where Alma gives fatherly advice and doctrinal exposition to each of these sons. And Alma first talks to his son Helaman in chapters 36 and 37 of Alma. In 38, he talks to his son Shiblon. And then in chapters 39 through 42, the longest section is devoted to his instruction to his wayward son, Corianton. And it is in the context of his comments to his son Corianton that we see another example of this sort of thing. The righteous man of God, i.e. Alma, holding the right position on a certain doctrinal issue, and Corianton, his wayward son, holding the wrong position on this doctrinal issue. And the doctrinal issue that they're talking about in one of the lengthy passages here has to do with the doctrine of restoration. Once again, this is the idea that was going on in Joseph Smith's environment, and here it shows up again in the Book of Mormon. And Alma, of course, is against the idea of universalism. But as I said before, this idea of universalism was often to take the proof text in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, about the restitution or restoration of all things and apply it to people and say that eventually all people would be restored to God's presence and be saved in heaven. And interestingly enough, that is exactly the position that Corianton takes. And he even mentions the scripture, or at least Alma, his father does, in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, without actually citing to it, but talking about that there will be a restoration of all things as spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began, and he does that twice. And this is why Alma says in chapter 40, starting with verse 21, that the restoration is not everybody being restored to heaven and happiness. The restoration instead is, number one, the restoration of the spirit and the body, and then there's a restoration of those who did good to a reward that is good and a restoration of those that did evil to a reward that is evil. That is Alma's interpretation of the word restoration. So starting with verse 21, but this much I say that there is a space between death and the resurrection of the body. And this is why he goes on and on about the space between death and the resurrection of the body, because he's trying to explain how it is that restoration should be correctly understood and a state of the soul in happiness or in misery until the time which is appointed of God that the dead shall come forth and be reunited both soul and body see that reunited that restored both soul and body and be brought stand before God and be judged according to their works yea this bringeth about the restoration that's verse 22 yea this bringeth about the restoration of those things of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets the soul shall be restored to the body and the body to the soul. See, there's that first instance of how restoration is supposed to be understood correctly. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. There's another restoration. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored. That's the third time. Restored is used in that one verse alone. But all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. Verse 24, and now, my son, this is the restoration of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. See, dummy, this is the right way to understand restoration. And then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. But notice it's the righteous who will shine forth in the kingdom of God. Not everybody, because what happens to the other people? But behold, an awful death cometh upon the wicked, for they die as to things pertaining to things of righteousness, for they are unclean, and no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. But they are cast out and consigned to partake of the fruits of their labors or their works, which have been evil, and they drink the dregs of a bitter cup. And this type 
type of argument continues into chapter 41. I just read the end of chapter 40 because he goes on. And now, my son, I have somewhat to say concerning the restoration of which has been spoken. He's not done yet. He's going to continue talking about the correct way to understand restoration. For behold, some have rested the scriptures. This is Alma talking to his son Corianton in the Book of Mormon, and yet it seems to be a reflection of exactly the type of argumentation on exactly the kind of issue that was going on in Joseph Smith's neighborhood. For behold, some have rested the scriptures. What scripture is he talking about that they have rested? Why, Acts chapter 3, verse 21. So we are presented in the Book of Mormon with two characters arguing about the correct interpretation of a New Testament scripture, strangely enough, going on, and have gone far astray because of this thing. And I perceive that thy mind has been worried also concerning this thing, but behold, I will explain it unto thee. And then he goes on and adds to his doctrine about restoration properly understood means a restoration of the spirit to the body and brought to be arraigned before God to be judged according to their works. And now he talks about the second idea, the correct way of understanding restoration. Verse 4 of chapter 41. And if their works are evil, they shall be restored unto them for evil. Therefore, all things shall be restored to their proper order, everything to its natural frame. Mortality raised to immortality, corruption to incorruption, raised to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God, or to endless misery to inherit the kingdom of the devil, the one on the one hand, the other on the other. So I don't want to belabor this point. This entire podcast is not about this issue, but I wanted to publicly thank Charles Harrell for this information that was given in this interview over at Coford Books Podcast on this subject because it really helped open up to me why it was that this whole discussion is going on between Alma and Corey Anton, this multi-chapter discussion about restoration, and why it is that Alma's trying to correct his son who misunderstands restoration as meaning everybody will eventually be saved, and that actually the correct understanding of it is that, no, everybody's not going to be saved, but the body will be restored to the spirit for everybody, and everybody will be restored to that which they have done, evil for evil and good for good. And it is really clear when you get down a little bit further in chapter 41 that that is the position of his son Corianton against which he is arguing his son is a universalist. Because he says, Alma says in verse 10 to Corianton, Do not suppose, because it has been spoken concerning restoration, that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. There's that famous verse from the Book of Mormon, the scripture chase verse from seminary. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. But this is in the context of the very same verse that makes it clear what position it is that Corianton is taking, that of being a universalist and understanding restoration to mean universal salvation. Do not suppose, Alma corrects him, do not suppose, because it has been spoken concerning restoration, that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. And then he goes on in verse 12, And now behold is the meaning of the word restoration to take a thing of a natural state and place it in an unnatural state or to place it in a state opposite to its nature. O oh, my son, this is not the case, but the meaning of the word restoration is to bring back again evil for evil or carnal for carnal or devilish for devilish. Good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. So once again, there's Alma's understanding of the word restoration, which supports his view of eternal rewards for those who do good and eternal punishment for those who do evil, and which is contrary to the universalist understanding of the word restoration, as meaning that everybody will be restored to the presence of God and everybody will eventually be saved. Regardless of how you come down on the subject, it's hard to get around the fact that what is being argued here between Alma and Corianton is a reflection of the exact same kind of argument that was going on in Joseph Smith's society at the time the Book of Mormon was dictated. And once again, helps us understand why it is that Alexander Campbell, himself a religious leader in the same area and at the same time, could look at the Book of Mormon and read it and see reflected in its pages the same kind of religious arguments and debates that were going on in his society in early 19th century America. Now, I think the reason this was so interesting to me is because if you look at infant baptism, and the debate about infant baptism, that is a debate that continues to this day. That is a debate with which I am familiar. And so I can immediately see in Mormon chapter 8 an argument about something that is a bone of contention today. But this argument about the word restoration, whether it's universalist or not, is not something that I'm aware of going on today. Now, it may be going on. I'm just not aware of it. But the fact is, is that that kind of argument is not as prevalent today as the argument about infant baptism. And that leaves me in the position 
of not being able to as readily identify the argument about the word restoration and its correct meaning as being a contemporary argument as I am the argument about infant baptism. And it's only because Charles Harrell has done the work and the research in order to place it in its context of Joseph Smith's day that this was in fact an argument going on. And not only that, but that the very arguments themselves are what were used on both sides of the equation in order to argue for their respective sides that I was able to see that this is another instance in the Book of Mormon of answering the religious disputes of Joseph Smith's day. Something else that Charles Harrell mentioned that I want to touch on briefly before I get to the bad apologetics about the Adam-God theory, I haven't completely forgotten what the subject of tonight's podcast is supposed to be, has to do with the changing use of the word restoration in LDS theology. Because for a long time now, probably since at least around Joseph Smith's death, if not for a few years before that, the word restoration came to be understood as I understood it when I joined the church, which is restoration means that in the last days, through Joseph Smith and through God calling a prophet of God in the last days, he would restore his church to the earth. And what that restoration meant was that the correct doctrines would be restored to the earth. They'd been lost. The correct ordinances would be restored to the church. They'd been lost. The correct priesthood power to perform those ordinances would be restored to the earth because those had been lost. And these are the three main categories of things that would be restored in the last days. And these are the three main categories of things that were indeed restored through Joseph Smith. And this is why the position of the church has been pretty much since the 1840s that the restoration has been accomplished. And it was accomplished through Joseph Smith. There's no new doctrine that's been added to the church since Joseph Smith. There's been no new ordinances that have been added to the church since Joseph Smith. And there's been no new priesthood power that's been added to the church since Joseph Smith. He was the instrument of the restoration. That's why when he was talked about, it was the prophet, Joseph Smith, or you could just say the prophet, and all the good LDS would know you're talking about Joseph Smith. But now we have entered into a new age with President Russell M. Nelson, and he is changing the meaning of the word restoration. And this is once again what I had mentioned before about the new restoration proclamation, where it codifies the repeated usage of the idea that this is an ongoing restoration. No longer is the restoration something that was accomplished through Joseph Smith, and we're just doing our best to fulfill the commission given through him and spread that doctrine, those ordinances, that priesthood power throughout the world in preparation for Jesus' coming. Now that restoration is not completed with Joseph Smith. Instead, it is now ongoing. But how can that be? This is what Charles Harrell asks. And he answers the question in a very fascinating way because the meaning of the word restoration is now coming to mean something different in the LDS church. It no longer means a restoration of the essential characteristics and essential doctrines, ordinances, and priesthood power of the LDS church. Now it means relatively minor monkeying with different programs and terminology and policies within the LDS church. These are the things that President Nelson is changing all over the place. For instance, taking church from three hours to two hours. For instance, combining the high priest group with the elders quorum. For instance, insisting that the church be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints instead of the Mormon Church and making a whole lot of changes in different publications and different email addresses throughout the church in order to reflect that, up to and including changing the name of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. These are the tiny adjustments and relatively unimportant things that are now considered to be part of the restoration. This is the way that the restoration is ongoing. And so what we can see here is that the word restoration itself has changed from being the idea of restoring what was lost. I mean, that's what the word restoration means, right? That you take something that was lost and now you're restoring it once again. These are never things that were lost. These tiny little changes making church from three hours to two hours. This isn't something that was lost and is now being restored as part of the restitution of all things at least not the way we would have thought about it when I joined the church and for a hundred years before that. Now the restoration has become unmoored from that meaning. No longer does it mean a restoration of what was lost. Now it just means changing with the policies, programs, and nomenclature of the church. And I thought that was a fascinating insight and I wanted to share it with you on this program today. Okay, so now we're going to get to the bad apologetics, specifically the bad apologetics of the Adam-God theory. Now, 
after I posted last week's episode about the Adam God theory in the podcast titled The Essay That Started It All, there were a number of questions that came flooding in. And these are typically the standard kinds of questions that I hear when I have talked about the Adam God theory. And I feel like I'm in a position where I don't want to say I'm uniquely qualified to be able to answer them, but I am pretty well qualified to answer them because of my history with the Adam God theory. And my history with the Adam God theory is that I was exposed to it at one point, actually prior to my mission, I was exposed to it again on my mission. I continued to gain exposure to it after my mission. And these were through circumstances that had nothing to do with me searching it out. It's like it sought me out. And as part of my effort to understand the Adam God theory, by the way, understand the Adam God theory from an apologetic point of view means Not understanding it necessarily, but understanding it in such a way as that it comports and harmonizes with what is currently taught by the LDS Church. That's what it means from an apologetic point of view to understand the Adam-God theory. But as part of my process of trying to understand the Adam-God theory, I read a lot of material and books and articles that were written by people, apologists for the church, in order to try and deal with the Adam-God theory. And a lot of those answers sounded good to me. They sounded right to me. They took care of the problem, which is what I was mainly interested in, at least for a time. Because as the 80s progressed, I began to dig deeper into the Adam-God theory. I began to dig deeper into the original sources. And what I found out time after time was that the apologetics that I had studied and found earlier on were universally wrong. They were bad apologetics. Now, I can't say whether they were intentionally bad apologetics. I mean, were these books being written and articles being written by people who actually knew that the answers that they were given didn't hold up in light of further research? Or did they just not know that research in the first place and therefore they were giving these bad answers in a vacuum? I don't know the answer to that. All I can say is that once I did my research, once I did my due diligence, which as I say ended up in my writing an unpublished manuscript of several hundred pages on the subject, what I found out was that time after time, these apologetics around the Adam-God theory were wrong. They were bad apologetics. And this is what I want to talk about here during the last part of this podcast. Because the bad apologetics frequently get incorporated into questions that are asked whenever I bring up this subject. And you can look at all these bad apologetics as defenses to a castle. If a castle is under siege or under attack and there is an opposing army coming at them, the opposing army is like the people asking about the Adam-God theory and wanting to find out what the truth is about the Adam-God theory. These are members of the church. You, as an apologist, are inside the castle, and you're trying to defend the castle against the opposition ever making it to the castle. That's the whole idea. And there will be a number of defensive strategies. One defensive strategy may be way out there. It may have to do with booby traps of some sort, which are designed to kill off some of the invaders. And then you may have archers up on the ramparts who, when the opposition gets a little bit closer, are in range of the arrows and you shoot off hundreds and thousands of arrows and you try and take out as many more of those who are coming toward the castle as you can. Then they get toward the castle. There's another booby trap. There may be big, sharp, pointy sticks that come up and skewer a bunch of them. That takes out a lot more of them. Then they get to the moat. They have to get over the moat. And then you've got boiling oil, which you pour down when they get to the walls and throw off big rocks and try and hit them in the head and take out a bunch of them that way. You've all seen Game of Thrones. You've all seen movies like this. You know what I'm talking about. Well, in a similar sense, all these different apologetics about the Adam-God theory are like those different defensive measures in order to keep an invading force from getting to the castle. So the first line of defense, generally, about the Adam-God theory is to simply deny that Brigham Young ever taught it. Because most people are never going to hear about the Adam-God theory in the first place. The vast majority of people are taken care of in ignorance. But somebody might hear about the Adam-God theory, and so the first line of defense is to say, well, Brigham Young never taught it. Okay, that's the first line of defense. That's going to take out a number of people. Many people will not proceed past that point, because if they proceed past that point and actually start looking at the documents, then what they're going to find is, no, that's wrong. That's bad apologetics. Brigham Young really did teach the Adam-God theory. Okay, so the second line of defense is that he only taught it once. And actually, he didn't even teach it at all. What he did was he mentioned it once in a sermon in 1852. It's found in Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, pages 50 and 51. And really, he's not teaching the Adam-God theory there at all. He's teaching modern correlated 
doctrine. And the reason this defense is used is because generally, nine times out of ten, if somebody actually hears or reads a quote from Brigham Young on this issue, it's going to be this one because it's the most famous quote that Brigham Young ever gave on the subject. And this is when he says that Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. Well, that sounds confusing, doesn't it? That sounds like Adam is God. But then he goes on to identify God as that character who was in the Garden of Eden. Okay, now, on its face, that sounds like it's talking about Adam, because, of course, Adam was in the Garden of Eden. But wait a second. We read in the scriptures, don't we, that God himself also took his walks during the cool of the evening in the garden. So we know that God himself was also in the Garden of Eden with Adam. So what Brigham Young was really saying there was not that Adam was God, because Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Instead, he's still referring to God who was in the Garden of Eden with Adam. That character in the Garden of Eden is broad enough to encompass both Adam as well as God, and therefore Brigham Young was simply misunderstood. Case closed. So that's the next line of defense. And you can take out a number of invaders with that argument. The problem is if you continue to advance toward the castle, by which I mean continue to do research, what you find out is, number one, that is not the only time that Brigham Young mentioned it. It's the first time on record that he mentions it, but he mentions it over and over and over and over again in many different venues on many different occasions. In fact, it is a teaching of his consistently from 1852 all the way to 1877 when he dies. That's 25 years of pretty much uninterrupted statements and teachings of Brigham Young about the Adam-God theory. And as I mentioned in my earlier podcast, he also had the Adam-God theory put into the lecture at the Vale in the Temple Endowment at the St. George Temple. So it would continue to be taught even after he died. So it is not something that Brigham Young taught only once. Now the next line of defense is to say that Brigham Young didn't really say these things in actuality. They're in print, but they're not in print the way he said them. Instead, they're in print inaccurately. They didn't have tape recorders back then. His sermons are not word for word what he said, and the person who recorded his sermons got things wrong. And it's the recorder's fault for why it is that it looks like Brigham Young is teaching the Adam-God theory. Really, he didn't. It's the recorder's fault. The recorder messed up. Now, that will take care of a number of invaders, too. But if you start thinking about it and actually going back and looking at the records, you'll realize, or at least I did, that this is bad apologetics on the Adam-God theory as well. First off, when you realize that Brigham Young taught principles related to the Adam-God theory over the course of his prophetic career, Isn't it interesting that it's only in those instances where Brigham Young is teaching the Adam-God theory that the recorder got it wrong? I mean, it would be one thing if the recorder is making mistakes all over the place on various different issues and various different subjects. That's what you would expect if it's just the recorder's fault. But no, this recorder only makes mistakes when Brigham Young is talking about the Adam-God theory. That's problem number one. The second problem is that what this argument assumes is that Brigham Young never reviewed his talks before they were published. Now, Brigham Young obviously would want to review his talks before they were published, because once they're published, this goes out now in an official format, whether it's the Deseret News in the newspaper there in Salt Lake, or in the Journal of Discourses over in England, or in a variety of different formats. It's very important for him to make sure that he is being represented correctly before his sermons and teachings are put in print and disseminated out to all of the members of the church. And logic tells us that yes, he would do that. He doesn't simply give a sermon and then let some recorder write it down in any way the recorder wants and make whatever mistakes the recorder is going to make and then it gets sent out without Brigham Young reviewing it first. But we don't have to just conjecture on this point. I mean, it makes logical sense that Brigham Young is going to review his sermons before they get published, but he actually refers to that process in Journal of Discourses, volume 13, page 95. This is from a discourse given by Brigham Young, January 2nd, 1870 where he says the following, The Lord is in our midst. He teaches the people continually. I have never yet preached a sermon and sent it out to the children of men that they may not call scripture. Now listen carefully to what he says next. Let me have the privilege of correcting a sermon and it is as good scripture as they deserve. So there he refers to his practice. Of course, he corrected his sermon after it was given and before it was sent out to the saints. And he says that after I have the privilege of correcting a sermon and it is sent out to the saints, that he has never yet preached a sermon that they may not call scripture. So that is 
The next bad apologetic on the Adam-God theory, I think we're up to about three now, that Brigham Young's sermons in this regard were incorrectly recorded and then published and then sent out to the Latter-day Saints. He didn't really say those things about Adam-God. Instead, it was the recorder who got it wrong. The next thing, which is number four, is, okay, let's say that those first lines of defense, those first three lines of defense, right? Brigham Young never said it. He said it once, but he was misunderstood. And then to blame it on the recorder for writing it down incorrectly. Let's say those first three lines of defense don't work. The fourth line of defense now is that Brigham Young is misunderstood. You're misunderstanding what Brigham Young said. He didn't really teach Adam God. He's really teaching Orthodox Mormon doctrine, current Orthodox Mormon doctrine. But you're misunderstanding what he said. Well, I struggled myself with that very argument for a long time because when I encountered the Adam-God theory back in the early 1980s, my goal was to make it fit current Mormon doctrine. I tried to get what Brigham Young said on the subject to match what the church currently teaches. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried and I could not do it. And the reason why I could not do it is because they don't match. Brigham Young was teaching something fundamentally and even radically different from what the current church teaches on the subject. But after doing a great deal of work on the subject, it was actually in the late 1980s, I had an epiphany. I had a revelation of sorts because what I finally understood was that if I let Brigham Young actually speak for himself and actually try and take him at his word and just listen to what he was saying and give him the respect of trying to understand his position as he's articulating it, all of a sudden, all the confusion went away. The confusion occurs when we're trying to make Brigham Young match current Mormon doctrine. All that confusion evaporated for me when I just let Brigham Young speak for himself and realize he's teaching something very different from what the current leaders of the church teach. So now we get to the next line of defense. And the next line of defense is to say that Brigham Young contradicted Brigham Young on the subject. And Bruce R. McConkie said as much in his letter, his private letter that he wrote to Eugene England back in the early 1980s. He said that Brigham Young contradicted Brigham Young on the subject, that there were some places where Brigham Young taught the Adam-God theory, and there were other places where Brigham Young taught the current Orthodox theory. So really, it's a question of which Brigham Young are you going to believe? Now, of course, this is one of the last lines of defense because at this point you're having to admit that actually Brigham Young did teach the Adam-God theory at least part of the time, but your defense is, well, he also taught the Orthodox theory part of the time. And you can see why this is one of the last lines of defense because you're having to concede the argument, at least for part of what Brigham Young said. Now, I have heard this argument for many, many years, and all I can tell you is that based upon my reading of the original statements, by Brigham Young, I think this is another case of bad apologetics as it relates to the Adam-God theory because I am not aware of any place where Brigham Young taught the current Orthodox teaching of the church as opposed to the Adam-God theory. Now, there are places where he's clearly teaching the Adam-God theory and there are places where he makes other statements that can be harmonized more easily or at all with the current teaching of the church. But just because he says some things that can be understood within the framework of current understanding and teaching in the LDS church does not mean that he wasn't also teaching the Adam-God theory there. And we found a great example of that in the last podcast about the Adam-God theory from the recent church manual about the teachings of Brigham Young, where in that most famous discourse of his from 1852, where he said, Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do, that instead of quoting that part for the manual, of course, they're not going to quote that part in the current manual, but instead of quoting that part, they quoted the lines immediately prior to that statement in the exact same sermon. And it was that previous statement that could be understood as supporting and teaching the current Mormon doctrine. It was only when you considered an actual context of what Brigham Young was saying that you understood that when he said God is the father of our spirits, which was in the first part that was quoted, what he actually meant was that Adam is the father of our spirits, which was in the second part that was not quoted. So as I say once again, I find Brigham Young to have been remarkably consistent in teaching this radically different doctrine from 1852 all the way to 1877, and the very same concept was put in the lecture at the Vale in the St. George Temple. Brigham Young is consistent throughout in how it was that he taught about the relationship between Adam and God. It is not, from my point of view, and I've studied it pretty thoroughly, and I found no exceptions to this. Maybe if somebody knows one, they can point it out to me, but I have not found any place where Brigham Young contradicted Brigham Young on this issue. Now, let's get back to those denials for just a second, okay? We mentioned those denials at the outset, 
But sometimes we have denials from presidents of the church. And the classic example of this was Spencer W. Kimball from 1976 in General Conference, where he made a denial about the Adam-God theory having been taught. And you remember, there were a number of comments about the Adam-God theory in and around 1976. In the 70s and early 80s, President Kimball was not the only one to speak about it. Marky Peterson talked about it. Von Featherstone talked about it. But the most authoritative declaration was, of course, from the individual who was the president of the church in 1976, and that was Spencer Kimball. I played that audio clip in the last podcast dealing with this issue. Okay, this is what he said. This was in October of 1976 General Conference. Spencer Kimball says, We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. Such, for instance, is the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. Now, he's very specific in labeling the Adam-God theory as false doctrine. However, he does not deny that Brigham Young ever taught it. Instead, he uses language which is meant to give that impression, and yet the language he uses does not actually say that. Notice his actual words. We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. They are alleged to have been taught. The use of this language is intended to give the listener the idea that really it was never taught by past general authorities of the church. It's only alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of the church of past generations. But really, the verb alleged doesn't say anything about whether it's a true or false allegation. I am certainly alleging that Brigham Young taught the Adam-God theory and my allegation is true. It's correct. So alleged is one of those funny words which can be used in order to make it sound like the allegation is false when really the word allegation has nothing to do with the truthfulness or the falsity of what it is that is alleged. That's up to the evidence and the proof. Now there is a term that is used to describe this kind of practice, this kind of use of language, which is meant to give a certain meaning to the audience without ever saying what it is that you're actually trying to indicate. And that term is called equivocation. And here Spencer Kimball appears to be equivocating on the subject. He wants to give the impression that he's denying that Brigham Young ever said it, but he's actually not saying that Brigham Young ever said it. And why is he engaged in this kind of equivocation? Well, because there are people out there who either already know that Brigham Young already taught it or will find out that Brigham Young actually taught it. And Spencer Kimball doesn't want them to be able to come back on him and call him a liar for denying that Brigham Young ever taught it. And so therefore, he simply says, alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. He's covered. He's got plausible deniability. He wants to give the impression he's denying that Brigham Young ever taught it while leaving open the escape hatch that if he's called on it, he can say, no, I never denied that Brigham Young ever taught it. Look at my language. I never said it. Sorry, can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. So not only Spencer Kimball, but also Bruce R. McConkie in his Seven Deadly Heresies speech at BYU gave another kind of non-denial denial about Brigham Young ever having taught it. He wants to give the impression that Brigham Young never taught it, but he's not actually going to use those words. Instead, Bruce R. McConkie also uses weasel words in order to give himself an out should anybody call him on actually meaning what it is that he's implying. And if you remember, that was heresy number six. Now, I'm just going to read his words about heresy six and notice at one and the same time how the impression is attempted to be given that Brigham Young really didn't teach this. Well, actually, that is never stated. Here it is in Bruce R. McConkie's own speech. Heresy 6. There are those who believe or say they believe that Adam is our father and our God, that he is the father of our spirits and our bodies, and that he is the one we worship. The devil keeps this heresy alive as a means of obtaining converts to cultism. Now notice he doesn't say that Brigham Young never taught it. He doesn't even mention the name Brigham Young. But obviously Brigham Young was a prophet of God and he wouldn't be teaching heresy, would he? The devil keeps this heresy alive as a means of obtaining converts to cultism. It is contrary to the whole plan of salvation set forth in the scriptures. And anyone who has read the book of Moses and anyone who has received the temple endowment, both of which of course Brigham Young would have done, he would have read the book of Moses, he would have received the temple endowment, has no excuse whatever for being led astray by it. Those who are so ensnared reject the living prophet and close their ears to the apostles. 
of their day. We will follow those who went before, they say. Now there he's almost tipping his hand, actually. He's talking about you need to follow what we teach you now as leaders of the church, not what earlier leaders of the church said. We will follow those who went before, they say. And having so determined, they soon are ready to enter polygamous relationships that destroy their souls. Okay, now I mention also this heresy six for another reason because it gets into yet another line of defense. And that is, if you've read the book of Moses, if you've gone to the temple and been part of the temple endowment and actually paid attention, right? You know that Adam is not God. That's why he says, anyone who has read the book of Moses and anyone who has received the temple endowment has no excuse whatever for being led astray by it. Now this is also bad Mormon apologetics. Let's break it down a little bit, okay? What he means by this is, if you've read the book of Moses, you're aware in the book of Enoch contained, I think it's in chapter six and seven of the book of Moses, there is a recitation of an encounter or multiple encounters that Adam has with God. So if Adam is here having an encounter with God who is over there, obviously Adam cannot be God. The same kind of argument applies to the temple endowment. Bruce McConkie says, if you've received the temple endowment, you have no excuse whatever for being led astray by the Adam-God theory. What do we see? We see Adam over here and we see God over there and we can actually see them as two separate beings. And so because in the temple endowment, we can see Adam over here as one being and Elohim over here as another being, we know that Adam is not God, i.e. the argument is that the Adam-God theory is not correct. Once again, bad apologetics. Why? Because Brigham Young never taught that Adam was Elohim, both in the book of Moses as well as in the temple endowment where the name title Elohim is specifically given to the top tier God that's represented there. Adam is certainly a different being from Elohim, but Brigham Young never taught that Adam was Elohim. Brigham Young taught that Adam was God and specifically the God of this earth. He was the God who in the pre-mortal existence begot with his wife Eve all the spirits that would come to this earth and then came to the Garden of Eden with his wife Eve. They fell and then they commenced the process of providing physical bodies for all of the spirits they had begotten in the pre-mortal existence of this planet. And so this also ties into the problem that I mentioned before, where sometimes people like Bruce R. McConkie will say that Brigham Young contradicted himself. Well, he didn't contradict himself. It is not a contradiction to the Adam-God theory to say that Adam is one being and Elohim is another. Elohim is a much higher God, a more advanced God than Adam is in the Adam-God theory. So they are two separate beings within the Adam-God theory. It's not a contradiction to say that Adam is a different being from Elohim and the Adam-God theory. But you can look at places where Brigham Young talks about Adam and Elohim as being two different beings, and you can look at that as consonant and consistent with the current church teaching, and that much is true. The problem comes when you look at it as being contradictory to the Adam-God theory, okay? And this was a realization that came to me somewhere in the mid-1980s when I'm in the middle of all this research because I had heard this argument made, the same kind of argument that Bruce R. McConkie here is making in his sixth deadly heresy, that obviously Brigham Young understood that God and Adam were different beings, so he couldn't think that Adam was God. Well, that argument holds only if Mormons believe in only one God. But Mormonism is famous for believing in more than one God and that there have been gods around since time immemorial going through the same process, the same kind of plan of salvation as we are going through on this earth. And therefore, with a multiplicity of gods in the universe, it is certainly not a contradiction to call Adam one of those gods and indeed a lower level God and the God of this earth. It's not a contradiction to say that Adam is God and that Elohim is God too, at least within the Mormon framework. And even within the Mormon framework today, we believe in multiple gods. Okay, now we come to one of the questions related to the Adam-God theory. This isn't so much a line of defense as it is a line of attack because Brigham Young on at least one occasion said that he didn't make up the Adam-God theory himself. He actually heard it taught from Joseph Smith. And one of the questions that came in was, did Brigham Young learn this doctrine, the Adam-God theory, from Joseph Smith? The answer to that is, very simply, there is nothing in the historical record that indicates that Joseph Smith ever taught the Adam-God theory, at least as Brigham Young taught it. So if Brigham Young is saying that Joseph Smith taught it to him and taught it to him in a location and in a method that left no historical record, there's no way to disprove that. All I can say with some degree of surety is that there's nothing in the actual discourses or records of what Joseph Smith taught that is the Adam-God theory as Brigham Young taught it. 
I will also note that it is very common when somebody is advancing a new theory to want to tie it back to somebody with authority. Brigham Young, the second president of the church, he's getting a lot of pushback on this theory of his. A lot of people believe it because they like it because he's the prophet, but there's a substantial amount of pushback going on as well. And so he has a reason to tie it back to Joseph Smith in order to say, hey, if you have a problem with my teaching this, your problem isn't with me, it's with Joseph Smith because I learned it from him in spite of the lack of any evidence that that was really the case, that Joseph Smith And next comes the question which I received was, did Brigham Young's teaching this cause any kind of dispute among other members of the church? And yes, in capital letters, yes, with three exclamation points after it, yes, 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 it absolutely caused a huge dispute in the church. And specifically, it caused a huge dispute between Brigham Young and one of the senior apostles in the Quorum of the Twelve, Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt did not like the Adam-God theory. He did not believe the Adam-God theory, and he taught against the Adam-God theory. Now, that's its own long-involved story, and Gary Bergera, that's B-E-R-G-E-R-A, I believe, wrote a book about it called Conflict in the Quorum, and there's also an article that's available online, which is kind of a briefer version of the same thing, that talks about this huge dispute that arose over the Adam-God theory. There were other doctrines as well, but this was the primary dispute, the Adam-God theory, where Brigham Young teaches the Adam-God theory, Orson Pratt doesn't like it, Orson Pratt believes in the biblical account, which is also, by the way, the account that's in the endowment, that Adam was created out of the dust of the earth, and he was a distinct creation of God. He's not a God that existed prior to this earth. He's not the God of this earth. No, he is subordinate to God. And this was a huge fight between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt. And this fight is documented. This fight actually does appear in the historical record. And Orson Pratt came this close to getting kicked out of the Quorum of the Twelve and even excommunicated because of his refusal to back down on this issue. He ended up sort of partially backing down and he saved his membership in the church. He saved his membership in the Quorum of the Twelve. However, it is probably because of this conflict that he had with Brigham Young on this issue as well as other issues that Orson Pratt never became the president of the LDS church. Because after Brigham Young died, the next apostle in seniority was Orson Hyde and right after him was Orson Pratt. Orson Hyde was older than Orson Pratt and therefore had more seniority in the Quorum of the Twelve. Because both Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt were members of the original Quorum of the Twelve, and that's how their original seniority was established, by age. But it appears that Brigham Young did not like the idea of Orson Pratt becoming the president of the church, and therefore, right before he died, Brigham Young changed the rules. And the way he changed the rules was instead of just having the president be the person who had been ordained an apostle for the longest period of time become president, instead he had it be the person who had been serving as an apostle for the longest consecutive period of time. And what that ended up doing was pushing Orson Pratt to the side because Orson Pratt, there was a brief period of time during the 1840s in Nauvoo where he had been excommunicated and it was largely over the issue of polygamy and Joseph Smith and Orson Pratt's wife. But Orson Pratt was excommunicated for a brief period of time in the 1840s. He was then readmitted back into the church and readmitted back into the Quorum of the Twelve. But according to Brigham Young's new rule, that started the clock over again for Orson Pratt And Orson Hyde appears to have been collateral damage because Orson Hyde, like Orson Pratt, had been removed from the Quorum of the Twelve for a brief period of time in 1839 before being readmitted back into the Quorum of the Twelve. And that put John Taylor up on deck to take over as president of the church upon the demise of President Brigham Young in 1877. Now, this rule, this new rule that Brigham Young instituted about how to calculate seniority had a dramatic effect on history because if not for that new rule and if everybody had lived to be the same age they actually lived to, then when Brigham Young died, Orson Hyde would have become president. When Orson Hyde died, Orson Pratt would have become president. And only after Orson Pratt died would John Taylor have become president of the LDS Church. Instead of being the third president, John Taylor would have been the sixth president. And this entire change, which altered the course of LDS history, appears to have been based upon the fact that Brigham Young wanted to ensure that there was no way that Orson Hatt was going to become president of the church, and in this he succeeded. Now finally, this huge conflict between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young on the subject of the Adam-God theory plays into the question of whether Brigham Young was misunderstood. Are we just reading his sermons now over a hundred years later 
And are we misunderstanding what it was he was saying? Was he really teaching modern correlated doctrine, but either the transcriber or the recorder got it wrong, or we're just misunderstanding what it was he was saying? The answer to that is an obvious no. Because if we were just misunderstanding what he had been saying, if the recorder had just written it down wrong, there never would have been any blow up between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young. Because Orson Pratt would have heard Brigham Young, maybe Orson Pratt misunderstood it, he would have said, you gotta be kidding me, this is wrong. And then what does Brigham Young say? Brigham Young would say, no, you're misunderstanding me. I'm not actually teaching Adam God. I'm just teaching the current correlated doctrine of the church. And then there's no problem. There's no dispute. There's no conflict. There's no Orson Pratt almost getting excommunicated. There's no Orson Pratt never becoming the president of the church. The only reason that there is a longstanding, continuous dispute between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt on the issue is because Brigham Young was not misunderstood and Brigham Young was not misquoted. All right, so that's pretty much all I have to say about bad apologetics as they relate to the Adam-God theory. And if a person can actually get through all these different lines of defense to the castle and make it up the wall and into the castle, what they find out is that, yes, Brigham Young actually taught the Adam-God theory. No, he was not misquoted. No, he was not misunderstood. No, Brigham Young did not contradict himself. He did not teach the Adam-God theory at some times and then contradict himself by teaching the current correlated doctrine at other times. Which raises the question, why do apologists and why does the church have to protect this castle at all costs with so many lines of defense? And the reason why is because once you get into the castle and realize the truth of the subject and that none of these lines of defense actually add up to truth, that they're all instances of bad Mormon apologetics, once you get inside the castle, what you realize is that a president of the church, a prophet of the Lord, Brigham Young, taught something that is fundamentally contradictory to what is taught by the church today. And it's not just contradictory on some kind of ancillary or tertiary subject like is herbal tea against the word of wisdom or are caffeinated colas against the word of wisdom. It's not something that's really not important. It's on something absolutely critical and fundamental to LDS theology, which is who is God? Who is the God to whom we pray? Who is the God of this earth? When we talk about the plan of salvation and the pre-mortal existence and everyone on this earth being spirit children of Heavenly Father, is that Heavenly Father Adam as Brigham Young taught or is Adam one of those spirit children as is taught in current LDS theology? This is what is hiding in the castle because once a member realizes that the second prophet of the church really and truly taught something on a fundamental issue like this, like the nature of God that is contradicted by current prophets, now you're left with a Hobson's choice. Now you're left to struggle and wrestle with the question of how is it that two different prophets, both LDS prophets, both inspired of God, both receiving revelation from God, and yes, Brigham Young claimed this was a revelation, how can they contradict on such a fundamental subject? This is why this castle has to be defended at all costs. And this is why I've gone on at some length of showing you why all the defenses to the castle are based upon bad apologetics. And this may also lie behind the fact that in spite of the many different subjects that the church essays have addressed and that have been put up on the church website, noticeably absent among those essays is an essay dealing with the Adam-God theory. If the LDS church is Superman, the Adam-God theory is kryptonite. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.